A couple things I just wanted to, to mention to you. In the back, you'll see on the, the table we have uh, some Bibles. Any any one of you that would like to take one, they're free. Uh, if you know someone that would like to have a Bible, a physical copy of it, uh, I get a bunch of these, get them in bulk, and uh, so those are available. Also, uh, any, some of you have these phones, and the uh, U version. You can go on, I think, with Android or iPhone or whatever. Just download the app called Uversion. And it's just a, it's an amazing app. It's just all kind of Bible study programs. It gives you a verse of the day, which I, I like starting my day off with that. First thing, get up, get my coffee, verse of the day. And it's usually something really practical and really relevant. Uh, just to give your, your thought the right way. But I'd like to just encourage you in that way. Nowadays, you can have on your phone uh, Bible study plans. In fact, I've got uh, all my... Uh, pretty much all my library, all on my, I can get to it on my phone. So it's kind of nice. It's uh, it's a little weird when you're at church and everybody's w- looking at their phones while you're reading scripture, but I've gotten used to that, I think. So do it, do it myself. All right. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter two. So who's the greatest basketball player of all time? I know we're going to have a debate here. Well, you know that Michael Jordan has to enter into the conversation. Now, you get some of these basketball purists are going to say, oh, Bill Russell, because he had 11 championships. But what you think about Michael, most people know, and he is a household name, Michael Jordan. And if you're old enough, you can remember back to when he first, uh, his freshman year at North Carolina, and everybody is amazed by this guy. He can jump, he can shoot, he's just flashy, he's, everybody wants to be like Mike. Kids growing up, the um, Air Jordan brand has just kind of swept over the world in time, but even as a freshman, he played on the national championship team, and if you remember that game, that also had Sam Perkins and James Worthy, uh, more noted players before, but he's the one that, that uh, hit that game-winning shot, won the national championship as a freshman. The next two years, Michael Jordan was the national player of the year in the NCAA. He goes into the NBA. He is uh, scoring, I think, first year 37 points a game. It's just unreal. He, he ends up being the uh, scoring champion. I think the next year he was defensive player of the year. He was an all-star. He was the all-star most valuable player. And all of these awards, he's getting the contracts. Uh, Nike has signed him to that. He's making money, and he's got all the video clips going on. But something's missing. What was missing? on his resume. He didn't win the championship. And so, and, and when you play the game, you play to win. Now, now some people say, I play to be a good sport, but usually people play to win. <laughs> you play to win. You play to, to win the whole thing. So any, any loss that, that keeps you from moving to the next level to win the national uh, championship or the NBA world championship is going to be a great disappointment. So he is going year after year without that championship. And something changed. And really a couple things changed. One, Phil Jackson 
became the coach of the Chicago Bulls, made, made a huge difference for Michael Jordan. Uh, they added another player, Scottie Pippen, who came to be kind of his sidekick along the way. Sorry if some of you don't like sports, if I'm going too long on this illustration here. But, uh, but then the other thing is that he began having conversations with Bill Russell. Now, Bill Russell was not the flashiest player, but he played in the NBA for 13 seasons, and he won 11 net, uh, world championships. Bill Russell. Bill Russell knew how to win. He knew how to win the championship. And those conversations, the new coach, the team, then Michael Jordan began to win. And you know, I'm, I'm reading and looking at all of this uh, going on the web, and, and you think how, how one thing could be missing, something's still missing. He, he is the greatest player in the world. There's something still missing. Now, we're going to look at a man who has often been regarded as one of the greatest leaders in all the world. Not just from a spiritual, scriptural standpoint, but even in world history and secular history, Moses will be regarded as one of the, the great, incredible leaders of all time. Why is that? Because you have a people, between two and a half to three million people, who are slaves. They're in bondage in Egypt. And the Egyptian army is the most powerful force in all the world. There is no hope for these people. They are persecuted. They are worked. They have taskmasters over them. And God sends in Moses. And Moses, with signs and wonders, miracles, and his leadership is going to lead these people out of bondage, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to Jordan's banks of going into the Promised Land. He will be regarded as one of the great and incredible leaders. So, the story of Moses. We, we started last week with this series, Show Me a Sign. And this morning, I've added this postscript or the expansion on that. What am I missing, Lord? What am I missing? Because we're going to find that as equipped as Moses was, there was something fundamentally missing from his life. We'll see if you can pick that up. Exodus chapter 2, and I'm going to read uh, verses 11 to 15. And by the way, I'll have it on the screen. From time to time, I'll have them on the screen. You can just follow there and then, um, or, or, or look down at your translation there. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to be where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who are you to be ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. 
But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. We remember reading about the early days of Moses, how that when he was born, this, this young, beautiful son was born, and he's under a death sentence because the Hebrew people were growing so fast, and so many of them now, as we said, over two and a half million people in Egypt, they're feeling this is getting out of control. And so Pharaoh started trying to kill every male child. His mother put him in a basket that would float with pitch on it and put it in the reeds to try to keep him from being discovered. Pharaoh's daughter hears that voice crying, discovers this baby. She doesn't have children, and some, uh, as Josephus and other uh, Jewish and historic uh, historians tell us, that she didn't have children, took this as her own, became her child and a prince, and in line to possibly become the next pharaoh. But she wanted a Hebrew, since it was a Hebrew baby, mother to nurse the baby, which was just an amazing providence of God. When you think about this, that God has protected Moses by being discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, brings him into uh, this home, allows him still to be nursed and nurtured these probably first four to five years with his own mother. Now he's in the palace. And, and you would think, when you, when you look at how this story develops, that this is a sign. I mean, that God is at work. Isn't it amazing? You start to think through exactly what happened. And, and we get a little further expansion on this. If you want to turn over with me to Acts chapter 7 and verses 20 to 25. And I know I'm reading a, a little bigger chunk of Scripture than I normally do, but I want you to see this is part of a sermon that Stephen is preaching talking about Moses. And it's interesting how when, when we read, read this part, it gives us some more insight uh, because he mentions a few other things. It says, that At that time Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. In fact, some translations say he was a beautiful child. He was a goodly child. But he had a, a beautiful physical appearance. It says for three months he was cared for by his family. That's when he was hidden by his mother. Verse 21 says, When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, now remember, in, if we go back to Exodus, it didn't say 40, it says when he was grown up. Okay, so uh, you're not really a grown up until you're 40. Now, this is a matter of interpretation, I, I kind of tease you on this, but it's kind of funny when you think, hey, 30 is old or 40 is old. Well, typically when you realize that when a person hit 40, it's kind of like you're in full stride. I mean, you've been educated, prepared, you've got experience, you've been an apprentice, you've been taught, you've been learned. But by this time, you're, you're, you're into the flow of what your work is going to be. So it actually says 40, 40 years old. And I used to make a big deal of that, but now I'm a little older than 40, so I don't. <laughs> So it says he decided when he was 40 to visit his own people. 
Well, who are his own people? Well, his blood, his blood. He's a Hebrew. He's an Egyptian, but he's a Hebrew. He decides to go out and see how they're doing. Well, how are they doing? I mean, they are being persecuted. And he sees this. He sees one of them being mistreated. He defends that man, kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. And, and here's what he's thinking. In verse 25, it says, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. This is an amazing verse, this verse 25, because you think, did Moses really know what was going on here? I, I believe he knew what was going on. He believed this, that all of these sovereign orchestrations of God, of working in these ways, had perfectly fitted and prepared him to be the leader to, to rescue them. And now it was all coming to an end because the people did not respond by saying, oh, Moses, like when he killed the Egyptian, he was saying, they're going to say, oh, Moses, you're here to rescue us. But they did not. So here's what we see. He's 40 years of age. He's in the prime of life. He's a Hebrew. He's an Egyptian. He has dual citizenship. We've talked about that before sometimes when, when a person has dual citizenship, it allows them a certain amount of freedom. And he has the citizenship of the Egyptians. He is a Hebrew. He is a prince which when, when you're a prince and in line for the possible succession to be a pharaoh, he is prominent, he is wealthy, he is privileged. He, he grew up living in the palace. And this is what it says. He grew up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had every p- privilege. He's good looking. You say, well, that's kind of nice too. I mean, here he's, he's, he's easy to look at. How do we know? Because it says he's a beautiful child. It says that in in several passages. And then in verse 22, which I find is remarkable, it says he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was educated in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, which typically we think, were they cave people back then? Those Egyptians, they probably didn't know anything. When you go back and study what they knew, and how advanced the Egyptian civilization was. It's really pretty amazing. Typically, we think that, that man becomes smarter and smarter uh, as years go on. But if you think back to when God created Adam and Eve, he created them perfectly. And when sin came into the world, what happened to the world? What started happening to the world? It started deteriorating. Now, while we have new discoveries and you know, and I think just for the sake of time of people doing things, we do see improvements and some improvements in society. But as far as the perfect man, the perfect woman, every generation we're farther away from that. And we experience more deterioration. So you go back to this time, you're going to find that, that the educational system, the ability of people to learn was absolutely amazing. So typical for him, he would have the equivalent of several several master's degrees, uh, possibly a doctorate. He was advanced in mathematics, science, medicine, astronomy, the arts, languages. Uh, he would be an adept at hieroglyphics. He was taught in leadership. Uh, he was in the military. Part of, part of the royal development of people would be to serve in the military. And he was, he was very, very advanced. He was taught strategic planning. And then here's what it says. He was powerful in speech and in action. Now, this is in the New Testament describing back 
to what is happening in Exodus 2. And I think that puzzles a little bit of us, too, because we remember Moses arguing with God, and we're going to see that next week. He says, Lord, I can't speak. I, don't, I can't speak in front of people. <clears throat> well, that was after 40 years of being in the desert. We're talking about as he's 40 years of age, the first 40 years, he is articulate, he is a great communicator, and he's a great leader. Josephus writes that, uh, and, and tradition will tell us there are many accounts of this, that he became a military general before he was 40 and led all of Egypt in a, in a war against Ethiopia and destroyed the Ethiopian army. So he is a very capable man. So think back. If, if we're going to, okay, let's just make uh, the perfect basket. I talked about Michael Jordan. Let's make the perfect basketball player. And... Um, or we might want to say we want to make the perfect quarterback for the Broncos, but we won't get into that today. But we'll, well, we if we're gonna okay, we're gonna make the perfect leader. Who, who could lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land? Well, look at him. You say you the man. I mean, he's he's got it all. He's good looking. He's smart. He's intelligent. He's a leader. He's part of royalty. He's a Hebrew, so he understands those people. If you, were, if you were to write this out, the perfect makeup, we're, we're going to be like, uh, it's like the, the kids will do the Build-A-Bear or the Mr. Potato Head. We're going we're gonna to make the perfect leader. But something's wrong. Something's missing. And we're going to find out. That's kind of Moses' cry to God is, what, what is missing? Because it says in verse 25, he would have expected he would have expected that they, the people realize that God had sent them, sent him to rescue them. Everything goes wrong. So we find that this next phase is he flees to Midian, which is east and south, bordering Ethiopia. It is, um, it, it is, it is just desert. And it says he sits down by a well. Can you imagine the feeling? Here this guy has, has just almost perfectly been prepared to do this job at 40 years of age. And now he's at 40 years of age, and he has lost everything. He's lost everything. Hebrews don't want him. Egyptians don't want him. He's no longer part of the royal family. He doesn't have the riches, the wealth. of any. He has lost everything. Can you imagine how discouraged he was when he sat down by this well? We're, we're going to learn something about this well. Because I think we're, we tend to look at the sign. Oh, I see the sign. Look at the God's at work. Sovereignty He's making this man. He's smart. He's good looking. He's powerful. He's a good speaker. He's able to accomplish great things. He's a military leader so he can handle all of it. But I wonder this question. What was Moses' relationship to God? What was Moses' relationship to God before all this? I would say that he knew about God. He did not know God. He knew about God. He did not know God. And I think that's the case with many, many people, even in our country today and in many of our churches today we know about god we do not know god i think that a lot of what was 
driven for him. They had not, he had not heard God speak. He had not, uh, this is before they had uh, their, their religious order and set, set. He was probably driven more nationalistic, uh, a passion for his people, the Hebrews, and the God of the Hebrews. And, but they didn't really know that God personally. A lot of times religion becomes just part of culture. Yes, someone sometimes said, are you a Christian? Of course, I'm an American. What do you think? That, that's, that's kind of the way religion can work. That it's just, well, everybody's a Christian. Or everybody's a believer. And I think that would have been true. The same would be true in Israel, that Israel as a nation, as a people, two and a half to three million people knew about God through oral tradition and talk, but they did not know God personally. They did not know God in relationship. So you can imagine that the cry of Moses at this well in the Midian desert might be something like this, Lord, show me a sign. What am I missing? I thought that was the sign, that you were at work, that you brought me up in the Pharaoh's house, that you allowed me these opportunities. What am I missing? Moses is not going to be able to be used of God because he's missing something. What could he be missing? Smart, good-looking, articulate, capable, respected, dual citizenship? Here it is. Here's what he's missing. Brokenness, humility, and dependence. Brokenness, humility, and dependence. What he really lacks is a personal, intimate, relationship with his God. And that's really all that he needs. God does not need your brains. He does not need your good looks. He does not need your dual citizenship. He does not need your certificate of being a prince or you're going to be the next Pharaoh. God needs you to be humble before him and dependent upon him. And that is for every task we are called to. I think this is a most difficult time for him because when he comes down to that well, and I think the well in the desert, is a, the, the, the desert is kind of a picture of where his life is right now. It's like wasteland. My life is just wasteland. Have you ever felt that way? I have. I mean, there have been times where I felt, you know, my, I, right now I'm just in the middle of a desert. I'm in the middle of a desert. Some of you are like that today. I feel like it's just been scorched earth. And you're wondering, Lord, where are you? Show me a sign. Show me you're real. We talked about that last week. Show me you're real. Show me, show me you care. Show me you can do something. And nothing. You don't hear anything. You're, you're in this desert, and there's a well. There's a well. The well was usually the center of activity. People come to the well. And the well, to, I believe, represents the sufficiency of God. In the New Testament, it, the, the well, the water of life is Jesus Christ. We're going to see this pointed all the way through. But this well is, here's the thing, it's all you have. And it's all you need. It's all you have. And all you need. And this is what God would, would be saying to Moses. Moses, okay, all the great stuff. Now you have nothing but me, and I'm enough. 
First 40 years, Moses is, how I describe Moses? Self-confident. The leader. The man. Going to get it done. He's like, all of us would want our sons to grow up and just be so gifted and capable and just wonderful. So he's learning about how he is developing his confidence. The second 40 years, because he's in the desert for 40 more years. You think, that's a long time. Yeah, that's a long time. Four days is a long time. Forty days is longer. Four years is long. You know what I'm talking about? You be in a desert experience for 40 years. Why, why did it take so long? I think God was doing a thorough breaking of his man. It, it was out of the goodness of God and the love of God that he brings his man to the desert. Now, it's hard to understand that. But, but if Moses starts succeeding in his own strength, he's only deceiving himself. You can't do anything in your own strength. John 15, 5 says, For without me you can do nothing. Nothing. Forty years of silence. God's breaking him. And then next, and we're going to see this next Sunday, when he comes to the burning bush, Many of you have heard of that experience of Moses comes in the desert to this bush that is burning and not consumed. He's going to come to know God personally. But that follows this 40 years. 40 years of self-confidence, 40 years of no confidence, and the third 40 years I would describe as confidence in God. That's the difference in his life. His, he has confidence in his God. He has gone from knowing about God. He will go from knowing about God to knowing God. Later on in Exodus thirty-three eleven, it says, The Lord would speak Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. I love that. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. It also says in Numbers twelve three that now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. How can, how can someone who is such a great leader also be humble? Because usually those two don't go together. Do you figure? Usually when people are great leaders, they're not real humble. In fact, the, the word in the Hebrew language is meek. And meek doesn't mean weak. Meek means strength that is brought under control. There was no man more humble than Moses. I think this is an amazing thought that God is bringing him to this level. And, and, and here's how the greatness comes. The sign is the well in the desert. The sign is not all the things that are building up to make him the perfect leader. The sign is the sufficiency of God. The sign, the next sign will be the relationship with God. Because when I have total and absolute dependence upon God, it makes way for God to work. Remember someone told me this one time, God can do more in a moment than you can do in a lifetime. <laughs> Boy, does that hit the ego, huh? God can do more in a moment than you can do in a lifetime. And so out of God's kindness and grace and goodness, he allows Moses to go try and do it himself. Okay, I'm going to let you run. Go ahead. Make it happen. Knock yourself out. 
Go get it done. You're just Mr. Talent, Mr. Gifted. You know what? You think that's the sign? That's not the sign. The sign's the well in the desert. It's me. So I ask us this morning, how is God working in our lives? How's God working in your life? Do you feel really discouraged when you're in the desert place? Can you see that that's the love of God letting you come to realize all you have is Him and all you need is Him? Out of God's great love for Moses and for His people, He brings him to this place. The well is the sign. The burning bush will be the sign. All of these signs come to bring us to relationship and dependence. And I've thought in my own life that even, even when I'm doing well, I think sometimes it's like there's this big pause in my life. And, uh, and I'm waiting. And I, and I feel like, okay, Lord, you know, you've, you've let me do this, this, and this, and so shouldn't this, this, and this be happening? I've had all these experiences. I've been able to do all these things. And so, Lord, can't you use that? It's like the Lord saying, I don't need any of that. What I need is for you to be totally and absolutely dependent upon me, for you to be broken and humble and dependent and usable. And when your life becomes like a reservoir that I can fill and like a channel that I can drive through, I can do things. But if you're trying to make it happen, you're just getting in the way. And if you're anything like me, you try to make things happen. You just try to make things happen with what you, with all the tools you got. And, and the thing is, it doesn't get easier in time. The older you get, I think the harder it is because I get this kind of thing, well, now I got a lot more experience. You still can't do anything without the Lord. God wants Moses to know him intimately, personally, face-to-face as his friend, to be the recipient of grace, the channel of grace. So we may have to spend some time in the desert, but the desert is not punishment. This is where we can get off, where we start thinking, God's punishing me, and we're looking for something we did wrong. No, God's just graciously bringing you to the place that you need to be. We're looking for signs. And you know what? When we we follow the story of Moses, we're going to see a lot of signs. (laughs) But to me, the sign of the well in the desert is the most beautiful signs. He's saying to me, he's saying, Matt, I'm all you have left. But that's all you need. That's all you need. And that lesson to me gets, just keeps over and over God teaching that to me. God had an impossible assignment for Moses. God will have impossible assignments for us. The key is brokenness, humility, and dependence. And God will do in a moment what we could not do in a lifetime. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, we're so grateful for your patience, your patient working in us. And even for this story of Moses, who seemed to be just perfectly fitted, masterfully crafted as the perfect leader, that, Lord, you didn't need any of those things. What you needed from him was to be broken and dependent and humble, leaning upon you.
and to have a relationship with you. So Lord, in our desert experiences, may we find that same well and find the refreshment to our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.